0: Luke 22, and while you turn there, let me just thank you so much for your warm welcome of me and my, my queen, and also thank you for receiving me back tonight in your pulpit again. I want to read with you from Luke 22, verses 24 through 34. This account transpires just after Jesus has instituted the sacred sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors but ye shall not be so but he that is greatest he that is greatest among you let him be as the younger and he that is chief as he that doth serve for whether is greater he that sitteth and meat or he that serveth is not he that sitteth and meat But I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then here's our text, 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said, Peter said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Well, may God bless the reading of his word to our souls, as well as the preaching. Let's seek his face once more. Lord God, we ask that under this sermon, We would come to value, perhaps as never before, the riches that accrue to us and the needs that are met by those riches through the office bearing of our Lord and Savior. May we treasure Jesus Christ as our prophet, our priest, and our king. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Early on in my ministry, there was a couple that came to me. I could see by the body language, by the words, by the forcefulness of the woman that she certainly was the leader in the relationship. And she claimed that she wanted to divorce her husband. And asked my permission for that. Was that acceptable? And I said, Well, why? Do you, ha, has he been unfaithful to you? she said, No, but he doesn't meet all my needs. And when I responded that no one human being can meet all of another human being's needs, she looked puzzled. He looked relieved. But the point I was trying to get across was, there's only one who can meet all our needs. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Your father and mother, your wife or husband, your children when you get old, they can all help, but no one can meet all your needs but the Savior. And so tonight, I want to preach that through this little vignette in verses 31 and 32 of Luke 22. These wonderful words, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, or you could read there, repentant, strengthen thy brethren. And in looking at this theme of the value of Christ as our office bearer, we're going to look at three thoughts. First, Christ's prophetical admonition. See that in verse 31a, or verse 31. Second, his priestly intercession, 32a, And third, his kingly commission, 32b. (coughs) Christ's prophetical admonition about Satan, his priestly intercession for the disciples, his kingly commission to Simon Peter. Now these words of our text tonight come at a very emotional moment in the life of Jesus. He's about to go to Gethsemane, to Gabbatha, to Golgotha, to suffer and die. He's just came out of instituting the Holy Supper. And in between those moments, sandwiched in between them, is this awful verse, verse 24. And they argued among themselves who was the greatest. Did you ever think about what that must have done to the soul of Jesus? When you're a teacher or a preacher, and you're teaching very important things, and, or you're a pastor, and people don't take it to heart, but actually respond the opposite way. It can be very, very discouraging. Here is the Lord Jesus. He's going to establish a church that will never die, and the gates of hell won't prevail against her through a motley group of of 11 or 12, and they, after he institutes the Holy Supper, are arguing among themselves who's the greatest. It's no wonder. No wonder that Jesus says down in verse 38... He said unto them, it's enough, it's enough. It's amazing that the Lord Jesus bears with us, isn't that so? It's amazing that he sustains us when we're so slow to learn, arguing who is the greatest. And for three years, they've been enrolled in Jesus' seminary, and he's been teaching them that he who is the lowest is the greatest. A hard moment for Jesus but also a moment when Jesus realizes in his human nature that as he's going to go into the crucible, into the sieve of Satan and suffer and be challenged, this, in one sense, was Satan's hour coming and the hour of the power of darkness. And he he saw that his disciples would actually forsake him The shepherd would be smitten, and the sheep would be scattered. And so suddenly, he turns to Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan wants to have you, to sift you as wheat. You see, the tragedy of this whole situation is that Peter didn't realize his danger. And didn't realize it even after Jesus said these words, because he goes on to say in verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and death. Don't worry about me, Lord. I'm I'm standing good with you. I'm not going to fall. Me? I'm the lead apostle. Every time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, there's a list of the 12. Simon Peter's name is always first. He's a natural leader. But Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold. Jesus is exercising prophetical admonition. He's a great prophet. He meets all our needs as our prophet. He teaches us from the word, but he also teaches us through warning. Through warning. Warning is a great gift of God. When our children were very young, we live on a very busy road, we put a big, fat, white chalk mark across the driveway, about 50 feet from the road, and we told our children, in fact, we brought them down to that white mark, we looked them eyeball to eyeball, and we said, Kelvin, 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 Don't you cross this line. Or you could die. You could die. Why do we say that? To make life hard on them? No, because we love them. We want them to live. And you see, God wants us to hear his warnings. Lest we drift away The book of Hebrews says, his admonitions are meant for our good and for his glory. And so when Jesus sees his disciples behaving so unseemly, and he knows he's on the cusp of going into suffering and that Satan is about to devour them, he can't help but warn them. Shortly after I came to Grand Rapids, there was a young man who walked up my driveway. I didn't recognize him. And he told me he was going to jail. He'd gotten into the drug world, and he had become a a dealer. He got caught. But I didn't understand at first why he wanted to see me. But then he told me an amazing story. He said, My dad always said to to me, I love you so much that I'll let you do anything you want. You can stay out at night as long as you want. I trust you. I love you. I'm not going to be a dad with rules and regulations. But he said this to me. My dad never loved me. And I know you're the new pastor in town. And I know I don't go to your church anymore. But before I get sentenced to jail next week, I just felt a burden to come to you and say, ask you if you won't tell your young people to be grateful for a mom and a dad who will warn them and set rules for them. Isn't that something? This man, when he didn't have it, realized what he was missing by a loving parent who would say no. Loving parent who would say, Don't cross that line. But oh, dear believer, you have a loving Savior who says to you, Don't cross this line. He gives you Ten Commandments. He boxes in your life, fences in every area of your life, fences in your marriage with the seventh commandment, fences in your property with the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, fences in truth, whole area of truth in life, the ninth commandment, fences in even your desires in the tenth commandment. It says, Thou shalt not covet. This is not torture. This is the love of a prophet who wants to teach us and steer us in the ways of the holy law of the holy God to his glory and to our good. So the frightening truth was that Peter didn't realize it. The comforting truth is that Jesus did. Simon, Simon. Behold, now when there's a double name calling in the Bible, that is something rather special. It's not often, but a double name calling, particularly in the book of Luke, has that note of admonition. This is the third double name calling, Martha, Martha. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And now, Simon, Simon. But in a way, this is actually a triple calling. Unlike the other two, it has the word behold. The word behold is pay special attention. And Jesus adds that, no doubt, because he knows that Peter's not really listening to him. Not really taking it to heart. So it's a triple warning. Simon, Simon, behold. Satan wants you. He wants you because of your past usefulness. He wants you because of your present position. He wants you because of your potential value for the cause of God. What a warning to Peter. You, you think he'd be shaking in his boots, but he doesn't realize it. He doesn't say to Jesus, I thank thee so much. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. No, he doesn't pay any attention. He's not shaken by the seriousness of it, by the sincerity of Jesus' words. He's not even shaken by the fall of Judas who had just gone out into the darkness. He says, don't worry about me, Lord. Oh, Simon, Simon. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Take heed, because he who stands, thinks he stands, lest ye fall, lest ye fall. Jesus says it is enough. But what does it mean? Satan desires to have you. The, the Greek word there is actually Oh, It's the strongest word for passion for urgency for begging for pleading it you could translate it satan is asking for you excessively some commentators say it is even the word used in the courtroom he's he's suing for you he thinks he has a right for you he's he's got he's got judas iscariot he's a sinner and you're a sinner simon peter so he thinks he has a right for you too like Job. Remember how Satan went for Job in the Old Testament? It's almost like he wanted to sue God for Job. Oh yes, he only fears you because you give him benefits. Let me but touch him and uh, he, he will curse you to your face. Satan desires to have you, to have you. As if Satan is saying, well, I've I, I picked off one of your, your lieutenants, Judas Iscariot. Now I'm going for the colonel or the captain, Simon Peter. Well, this is a serious charge, a serious desire on Satan's part, isn't it? But it's not just Simon Peter. It's not just Simon Peter. Notice, notice what it says here. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you. Now, there's not many places in the Bible where the you and the and thou have, mean something substantial in their difference from each other. But of course, you know the English language and you know the confusion we get today because we don't have a singular form for you, so when we say you, mainly we mean plural, but now we use it as singular as well. In the North, we have nothing to distinguish it at all. In the South, you've, you've invented your own word, y'all, which means plural, right? If I say y'all, you know I mean everyone. If I say you, you don't know what I mean. Am I just from the North and I mean all of you, or do I mean just you individually? So English used to be a better language that way. And thee and thou were not archaic word forms, but they were just singular. So notice what Jesus says, Simon, Simon, in other words, I'm speaking to you as the leader. Behold, Satan's desire to have you, plural, all of you. He wants all 11 of you, like he has not just you, Simon. That he may sift you, all 11 of you, as wheat, but I have prayed for thee, singular. I particularly prayed for you, Simon Peter, individually, that thy faith fail not. Now, why does the devil want all church leaders? That's what we can gather from this, right? He wants all 11 of the leaders. Well, he wants the leaders because he knows that if he can destroy leaders, if he can get leaders to fall into sin, he can get the sheep to scatter, as Jesus said. And he can destroy the church, which is his desire. He always wants to wreak havoc in the church of Jesus Christ. So Satan wants to have you, all of you, and not just the leaders, also the Sunday school teachers, the the, the members. He wants you, boys and girls, because he wants you when you're young, he doesn't want you to give your life to the Lord. He wants teenagers. Because you have to make many decisions, and he wants you to go down his road. He doesn't want to give up his subjects. The devil hates true believers because they bear the image of Christ. And because he cannot get at Christ anymore, Christ is exalted, Christ is almighty, Christ is Lord, he's just a fallen angel, because he can't get at Jesus... He, he tries to get at the crown of Jesus' creation, which is a redeemed soul plucked from his army into the army of King Jesus. And we, who are true believers, are now the peculiar workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are snatched as brands from the burning, and he wants us back. We've gone AWOL on Satan. We've deserted Satan. We fled his territory. And we've confessed with Simon, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Satan hates that. So he wants you. Singular. (laughs) You, you, you. All of us. He wants every one of us. To do what? To sift us as wheat. Now what does that mean? Well, in Bible times, picture a, a, a snow shovel Well, you don't have snow down here. Well, picture a shovel with a long handle. And then on the bottom, picture something that would be very wide, about this wide, like a scoop, a wide scoop. And the farmhand would take that shovel or scoop, and he would scoop up a mixture from the farmer's threshing floor. And he would shake it back and forth with his wrists, and the dirt and The dust would fall to the ground, and the straw and the chaff would come to the surface, leaving the wheat in the bottom of the sieve. Now, so what Satan wants to do, you see, is he wants that straw and chaff in your life, that old nature, that indwelling sin, he wants that all to come to the surface and choke the wheat. And then he says to you, you see, you can't have the thoughts you have, you can't speak the words you're speaking, you can't do some of the things you're doing if you're really a Christian. You're not a Christian. I want you back. I want you to see that I am your king. I'll meet your needs. He lies. Well, that's Satan's goal. But Christ says, Satan has desired to have you. Not to purify you, but to destroy you. He wants to strangle with that straw and chaff. He wants to strangle and overpower the new man in you. And we must confess that it's not so easy when we're in Satan's sieve to come out pure, is it? I mean, Jesus did. But you and me? We tend to be more like Jacob who said, all these things are against me when he was in Satan's sieve. Or like Abraham. Abraham. In Satan's sieve, he said, Sarah's my sister. Or Job, who began well, but two chapters later, in Satan's sieve of affliction, cursed the day he was born. In fact, our hearts are so prone to wickedness that we not only do poorly in Satan's sieve of affliction, we can do poorly in Satan's sieve of prosperity. Maybe he blesses your business with tremendous profits, but you forget God. You're like, you sure, and you wax fat and kick. Satan has many sieves, many sieves. And we, we can fail again and again from sieve to sieve. How cunning and crafty he is. He's so much more powerful than we are. And before you know it, in the sieve of Satan, we start to miss the nearness and the dearness of Christ. And when sin then dampens the exercises of our faith, we learn to complain with Job, don't we? Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive the Lord. On the left hand where he works, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. We feel downhearted. We feel deserted. We feel forsaken of God. What will happen to us? What will remain? Will we be like Judas? Will we forsake? Will we drift away? What's going to happen to Simon Peter? Well, he won't be a Judas. Why not? Because the Savior, who meets all his needs as a prophet, teaching him and warning him here, is also the priest to sacrifice for him and to pray for him. And so we read in verse 32, I'm so glad that this text doesn't end with verse 31, but, you know, the Bible has these buts of interjection into hopeless situations that are just beautiful, like Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sin, but God, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a whole sermon just on those two words, but God. You see, this is a but God text. But I, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith, Fail not, oh, praise God, for the intercessions of Jesus. Now, these intercessions of Jesus, whereby he meets all our needs as priest, based on his sacrifice, giving his life for us, so that our sins may be washed away, are often minimized. I often say to my theological students, that the most underrated doctrine in all the Bible in Reformed theology today is the intercessory work of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. This is an amazing thing. Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Ever lives means ever lives. It means moment by moment by moment. And because he has the infinite capacity To remember a multitude that no man can number at one moment, corporately, as well as every single one individually, as if each child were his only child. That means that your Savior, dear believer, is remembering you right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. now. Second by second, by second. You're actually never alone, even when you feel alone, even when you don't feel his intercessions. He's praying for you constantly, 24-7, 365. It's what the text says. Hebrews 7.25, Romans 8.34. Here in Luke 22, I have prayed for thee. I have prayed for thee, but it's also in the ongoing progressive tense. I will, I will keep on praying for thee, and I will, I will pray for thee in the future. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I will pray for thee. I will uphold thee. Simon Peter, individually, thee. I will not let thee go, even though you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. That's love. Love. That's love. Well, Satan's sifting is very dangerous. But I've got good news for you. Jesus went right into the sieve and he came out on the other side without any sin so that he can protect you in the sieve and bring you out and purify you and present you acceptable on the great day to the Father. What a glorious thing his intercession is. He was sifted Already the moment he was ordained into ministry when he was baptized at the age of 30, Satan took him into the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, tested him in his sieve and every which kind of way. Jesus kept answering him. Same way we ought to answer him when we get in Satan's sieve. But the word of God says, but the word of God says, but the word of God says. Interestingly, all three times Jesus used the book of Deuteronomy that book that talks about how to live out of the law, a God-fearing life, rebukes Satan. So we must rebuke Satan with the word of God. So with the word of God, you can get Satan to flee. Boys and girls, you remember that story of Pilgrim's Progress? John Bunyan wrote it. Remember when Christian is in the valley of despair, the valley of the shadow of death. And Satan is coming at him with, with a sword. He's about ready to put the sword through, through Christian. Christian's helpless on his back. He's expecting to die. Suddenly, he's fumbling around with his hand. He feels something. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. He gets it in his hand. It's a sword. And with one thrust, Satan is gone. Remember that? And what was that sword? It was the Word of God. It it was this, this Bible. You see, you can defy Satan by bringing the promises of the Word of God, by bringing the Word of God. They have power. Well, Jesus rebuked Satan, rebuked Satan, rebuked Satan. Satan then left him for a season. But he came back, and he's about to come back in earnest now as Jesus goes into Gethsemane and Gabbatha and Golgotha, the three G's of his greatest suffering. But as he enters into that heated suffering, the, the, the epitome of his suffering, the apex of his suffering, the nadir of his suffering, as he enters into it, he knows, he knows, because he's also God, that he will withstand Satan. And he knows that he has a grounds on which to plead for Simon Peter. Because he is the one who merited for Simon Peter. That Simon Peter would come out of his sieve and repent. And go out and strengthen the brethren. It's all under his control. Jesus isn't standing helplessly by. He's saying, Simon Peter, I will pray for you. And I will pray for you I will sue for you, as it were. I will counterclaim Satan's claims in heaven's courts with my claims. And my claims are better than his claims because Satan has not merited your fall, but I have merited your eternal redemption. So I'm going to keep you. I'm going to keep you in the palm of my hands. Yes, I will bring you to repentance. Yes, I will make you feel the bitterness of your sin. But I will bring you back. I will bring you back, Simon Peter. I will pray for you. I will preserve you. You see, Jesus has a judicial right to say to Simon Peter, I will keep you. I will preserve you because he's merited forgiveness for Simon Peter by his sufferings, by his death, and by his intercession. And so a substitutionary high priest Jesus stands in for Simon Peter. He who knew no sin became sin that he might be made the righteous, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So you would think that Peter's sin, denying Jesus, would, would mean his destruction. But Jesus says, No, I've got you in my preservation. I preserve you, I won't destroy you. And he emphasizes. it. He emphasizes. It is in the text. It's actually uh, in what's called the emphatic tense. You could translate it this way. I myself had prayed for you. Or I underlined today. I have done it. I who am God, God-man, who am your Savior and your Lord and your treasure, I have prayed for you. Yes, the devil wants you. Yes, he wants you in the strongest possible way. But he's only a fallen angel. I'm the Lord of lords, and I myself, I myself remember you at the right hand of the Father from moment to moment. And I will go on praying for you, Simon Peter. This is incredibly comforting. Incredibly comforting. Have you ever been so needy before the Lord that you you could scarcely pray? That all you could do, maybe all you could do is just cry out, Lord. You couldn't even get the words out of your mouth. You're weeping so hard. You're so overwhelmed. The future looks so impossible. The problems are so great. Your sins have been so bad. Lord, Lord. You come to the end of your own prayers. But as you come to the end of your own prayers, and everything from your side is cut off, you see... You take refuge, refuge in the prayers of Jesus. You say, Lord, I can't I can't pray. But do thou pray for me? Do thou pray for me? And he remembers you. And he prays for you. Oh his sweet, sweet, ever-living intercessions. How great they are. And so he comes. He comes as his father's servant. His father's, may I say it this way reverently, farmhand to do his father's will. But what Jesus does, you see, he allows his people to be tested in the sieve of Satan. He allows them to be shaken back and forth. He allows the dust and the dirt to fall out of your life and the straw and the chaff to come to the surface. But what Jesus does as the servant farmhand of his father, he reaches in with his high priestly hand and he takes out the straw based on his own merits and he blows away the chaff (sighs) with his intercession so that only the wheat abides. He purifies you. He matures you. He meets all your needs as high priest, sacrificing for you, interceding for you, keeping you, when you can't keep yourself. Oh, what a glorious thing this is. Simon, I have prayed for you. Prayed what? That your faith won't fail. Do you ever ever meditate on that? Why did Jesus just pick out faith? Why didn't he say... uh, That your fleshly self-confidence won't fail. Your fleshly conception of yourself as the leader won't fail. Your fleshly expectation of an earthly kingdom won't fail. Your fleshly holiness won't fail. Your fleshly pride won't fail. Your fleshly strength won't fail. Your fleshly wisdom won't fail. Your fleshly prayer won't fail. Your fleshly self-righteousness won't fail. No, no. You see, all that is of the flesh must drop through the sieve. All that is of self must fail. But why didn't he say other positive graces? Why didn't he say that your love and your hope and your humility won't fail? Why just faith? Well, because faith is that noble grace, which is the die by which the disciples are bound to Christ. And Satan may not touch that bond of union, which is faith by which Christ dwells in their hearts. He may not destroy that faith, which is the heart of true godliness, for the just shall live by faith. That faith which cleaves and clings to the Lord, that faith that cannot but love God, that faith that has only one object, Jesus Christ, that faith which clings to God's word and shows them the living Christ is seemingly the lowest of all graces. It's an empty hand receiving faith. But in reality, it's the most active grace, the chiefest grace of all, because it's the engine behind which all the other graces are connected and run in the train of our lives. Hope is a car. Love is a car. Humility is a car. Repentance is a car. But faith is the engine. Faith goes out to Christ. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, Faith is a captain grace of all graces yes love will abide forever so in some ways love is the chiefest of all as well as first corinthians 13 says but in this sense coming to jesus abiding in jesus living out of jesus faith is the captain grace i pray that your faith will not fail faith is the bond of union john calvin has a wonderful exposition of that in his institutes where he spends several pages explaining that the bond of union from God to us is the Holy Spirit who indwells us, but that the bond of union from us back to Christ is faith. We receive him by faith. Spirit work faith. And that faith cannot die. It may be bruised. When a child of God backslides, it may be very faint, but it will be, as the Canons of Dort put it so well, in due time by the Holy Spirit revived. That faith cannot die. And the word here that Jesus uses that I have prayed for thee that thy faith uh, that thy faith fail not. Fail not. That's an interesting word. It's actually the word from which the Greek word from which we get the word eclipse. I pray that thy faith will not be eclipsed. So you think of the eclipse of the moon or the eclipse of the sun. I, I pray that Your faith won't be like that. It won't disappear. I pray that your faith will be alive and be visible. I'll bring it back. That noble grace that looks to me alone, I'll bring it back. I'll restore it, Peter. You will not hang yourself like Judas. You will repent. You will repent. Your faith will not die. I I meet all your needs. I meet all your needs as priests. There's a wonderful text in Amos 9, verse 9. Don't have time to expound it right now, but listen to this text. For lo, I will command and I will sift, this is the Lord speaking, I will sift the house of Israel among all nations as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. God won't, God won't lose one kernel of wheat, or corn. There'll be no empty chairs in heaven. The true faith that he plants in his people will never die, never die, not in one of them. What a glorious thing this is. Even the least, even the smallest grain shall come forth purified, come forth as gold, as Job puts it. But now Jesus says at the end of this verse that not only will I meet your needs as priest, I'll meet your needs as king. I'll give you Peter a kingly commission, a kingly commission. When thou art repentant, strengthen thy brethren. I say, wait a minute. Where's the kingly office there? Well, it's 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 implied in that little word when, when. You see, if you're an Arminian, you'd want to change the Bible here and you'd want to say, if thou art repentant. Jesus is standing by helplessly. You've got to repent. You've got to believe and then I'll be merciful. But if you're a king and you're more mighty, you're more mighty than Satan and you're that king of whom it is said, the glory of a king is his numerous subjects, as Proverbs says. You see, then you have all power given unto you in heaven and on earth. And you can say, when you repent, because I will bring you to repentance, Simon Peter. Because I'm your king, therefore I will commission you to go out now and to strengthen your brother Peter, now that you've fallen and you're broken, I'm going to restore you and heal you. And, and, and since God does not normally use a man greatly until he's broken him deeply, I will break you to use you. I will break you to heal you. I will empty you in order to fill you. Hosea 6, 1 and 2. This is God's normal way of working. That's why the Puritans used to say, particularly of ministers, they'd said. Ministers have to usually go through more trials than people who aren't ministers because they've got to be broken so much in order to be broken clay pots out of which the Word of God shines not only, but also so they can identify with all the pastoral needs of their people. So it's out of our brokenness, you see, that God commissions us, that God has a calling for us, a task for us. We're broken in ourselves because we're just sinners. We're just prone to deny and forget our Lord. But he says, no, no, no. I will use you when you are repentant. It's the word of a king. Strengthen your brethren. So Peter's washing himself, washing his hands in the hall of Caiaphas. There's a servant girl that comes. Remember the story? Three times he did not. He even curses Curses, imagine that. So I don't know the man. He's worried he's going to get thrown in jail or be killed. I don't know him. I don't know him. And then he looks up. And Jesus just happens to be walking through the hall of Caiaphas. And he gives him one look. One look. And what happens to Peter? He goes out and what does he do? He weeps. He weeps bitterly. He repents right on the spot. One look. You know, Jesus meets all our needs, and sometimes he does it just in a moment. Sometimes he does it through one word from the Bible. Sometimes he does it through what I might call one look that he gives us through the words of the sacred book. One look can do a lot. One look can do a lot. That's true, even in a even in a family. I have a brother, sister in law, of thirteen children, all happily married, all married to Christians. What a wonderful family it is! But some years ago, when they were all younger, most of them were at home. I uh, I was sitting in the living room one day in their house, and there was an open open living room, into the dining room, and into the kitchen. so all one open piece in their home. And there was a great bowl of cookies on the kitchen table where they would have supper in just a little while. It was like 5 o'clock, and one of the little boys comes along. He's 8 years old. He knows knows not to go get a cookie at 5 o'clock just before supper. He knows that. You could tell he knows it because his mother is in the kitchen with his back towards him fixing supper, and he, he doesn't see me off to the right. He comes in. He's, he's looking at his mother. He climbs up on a chair real quietly, reaches out his hand to take a cookie. He gets about six inches away. And, and, and you know that mothers have eyes in the back of their head, right? They know, where, they know what you're doing. They know where they are. Suddenly, she turns around. She just looks at him. Like... His hand freezes. He pulls it back slowly, slowly, slips off the chair, goes away. They never said a word to each other. Not one word. But he got the the message. But this look, this look was a different look. It was a look of tender admonition. Peter, you don't really know me. I'm your Savior. It was a look of love. I will still love you. Peter, it was a penetrating look that brought him instantly to repentance. Instantly. When, when you repent, it's a kingly look of amazing authority. Peter goes out and weeps bitterly, and then goes to strengthen his brethren, and obeys the commission of his lord. What happens? Well, Jesus arises from the dead. He says, "Go tell my brethren and Peter." And Peter, (laughs) Peter's thinking, "I'm never going to be included again. I've, I've, I've." Excommunicated myself from the apostles. No more to be an apostle. No, 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 Jesus is. Go tell my disciples. Go tell my brethren. And Peter. He's included still, even though he feels excluded. I'll meet him in Galilee. And then what happens? Well, there's 10 post-resurrection meetings of Jesus. All of them are described in detail except one. Some in great detail. Think of the travelers to Emmaus, 23 verses of detail. But Simon Peter's post resurrection appearance with Jesus, no detail. The Lord hath appeared unto Simon. Period. Why no detail? Because of the sacredness and the intimacy of that meeting, embraced by Jesus, completely forgiven, completely forgiven too sacred to put down on paper he appeared to Simon Simon got his personal visit this is the word of a king who will meet all his needs and then but then he has to be restored all the uh, all the apostles have heard about it it's a problem they heard it. You know, you know, the word went from one to the other. Simon Peter denied he even knew Jesus. So, John 21 Jesus comes to restore him. You know the story. Disciples can't catch fish. The stranger in the shore says, Cast a net on the other side. They catch more than they've ever caught before in their life 150 and three. And you know what happens? John says, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps over the boat. He flies to Jesus. He gets on the shore. He's got another moment alone with Jesus. What does he see? He sees a fire of coals and bread and fish, everything prepared, everything done for him, nothing Peter had to do, everything done by Jesus, the great king. Peter stares at that. He doesn't say a word to Jesus, not one word. And Jesus apparently didn't say anything to him, or so it seems. (laughs) But do you know that the word fire of coals is only used two times in the entire New Testament? First time is when he was warming himself by the fire of coals. Destroying himself. Saying, I don't know the man. The second time was on the Sea of Tiberias. Don't you think that Peter was looking at that fire of coals? Saying, I destroyed everything. But here now is a fire of coals and the Lord uses it for good. And there's a meal prepared. He's taking care of everything. He's meeting my every need. He's meeting my every need. And then the other disciples, before you know it, they're there. And then comes the interrogation. The public restitution. Is it true, Peter, that you love me more than all these? Second question, do you love me? This is the agape level, the highest level. Peter can only answer, no, I I love you with a love of friendship. He can't argue that he loves with a steady form of divine love, the agape love. And then Jesus asks him the third time, Peter, do you even love me? Do you even love me with with the love of a friend that is up and down? Is a friend's love that is up and down. Does, does that friend deny that you even know your friend? And Peter's grieved. And then he just appeals to Jesus' omniscience. O Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou art the King of kings. Thou knowest my heart. I, I, it doesn't seem like I love thee. It seems like I contradicted everything of love. But I do love thee. As poor as my love is. Now I can use you, Peter. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my mature sheep. I've broken you to use you. Go out and strengthen the brethren. And Peter goes out. What does he do? day of Pentecost happens. Everyone's talking. All these disciples, these apostles. they're, They're full of new wine. They're drunk. Because they're speaking in tongues. Who stands up? Who's bold now? The same guy who was afraid of a little servant girl. He stands up and in front of thousands, he preaches the gospel. The most Christ-centered sermon you can possibly imagine. And 3,000 men are saved. How many women and children? We don't know. 3,000 men are saved. Who goes on and becomes a leader over the whole New Testament church with the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Acts? Strengthening the brethren, Simon Peter. Well, he stumbled once or twice more. But who wrote those two beautiful epistles, which after the opening greeting begin this way We are kept by the power of God through faith, faith that won't die, unto salvation? Simon Peter. And who encouraged and strengthened his brethren by saying, Be careful. For the devil is going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Simon Peter. Simon Peter strengthens the brethren. So this is a king who meets all our needs. He breaks us. He makes us broken vessels, exercises us, purifies us, and makes us useful. What a glorious thing. What a glorious thing this is. And so, friends, I want to close with this. Flee to the intercessor, the advocate, the paraclete who meets all your needs, the Lord Jesus Christ. Defy Satan with the word and the promises of God. Defy Satan with the word and promises of God. I say that over and over to yourself, those two things. Flee to the intercessor. Defy Satan with the word and promises of God. Go forward in the strength of the Lord, trusting this prophet to teach you, to warn you, this priest to sacrifice for you, to bless you, to pray for you, this king to rule, to guide, to commission you. And go out and tell others of what a glorious and beautiful Savior he is. Tell him you found someone who can meet all your needs. And it's not your spouse. And it's not your child. It's not your parent. It's Jesus Christ. He'll bring you through every sieve all the way to glory. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, I appeal to you tonight, wake up, see what you are missing. Why won't you come to him? He can give you everything you need. Everything you need. Everything is in him. Don't try to go to eternity. Don't try to go through life like Peter. I don't know the man. Don't try to make ends meet yourself. You won't be able to do it. Take heed lest you fall into hell. Take heed unless you fall into the eternal sieve of Satan from which you cannot be extracted when it is too late but flee to Christ. Defy Satan with the word and promises of God. And soon, Romans 16, verse 12, or verse 20, will be fulfilled in your life, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank thee so much for a savior who meets all our needs as our office bearer. We thank thee for thy triple office, Lord Jesus, for its incredible value. Thank thee for being our prophet, our priest, our king. Thank thee for meeting all our needs, preparing us for glory, making us more and more Crucified to our own self righteousness and living out of thy righteousness. For thou hast said, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after thy righteousness, for they shall be filled. O oh God, prepare us for that day when we will meet thee face to face. That on that day we will be able to say, Jesus Christ, thou art all my righteousness through thy precious blood and through thy Perpetual intercession. And so I stand before thee in thy name with thy blood passport to enter into heaven. Lord, no one we know with that passport will be turned away. Oh, help us then not to rest until we are found in Christ, the only one, the only one who can meet all our needs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.